Friends, let me encourage you to turn to the 31st chapter of the book of Genesis as we continue our study in um, the story of Jacob, the story of the uh, patriarchs. We come to this uh, this text. It, we, we will not get to the fun part in some ways. The fun part, of course, is uh, when Rachel steals Laban's household gods. We won't get really into the fun part, but we will. Uh, that'll be for next week. We will nonetheless see this morning that God uh, God calls and God commands Jacob. He commands him to leave. He commands him to go somewhere. As we look at that basic, short, sharp, simple command, we're going to see something about our God and about ourselves. We come <clears throat> to this word. Let me remind you, it's not just me reading up here on some, some Sunday morning when the clouds are overcast. It's not just uh, some weak guy reading some old book. Okay, it's not what's happening here. It's nothing less than God himself communicating through frail people, as he always does, his precious word. Let's hear, therefore, from Moses. Let's hear from our God. We'll read verse 1 to verse 21 of this chapter. We're told that now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob's taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he's gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred. I'll be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If Laban said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. If he said, the stripes shall be your wages, all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream the goats that made it with the flock were striped spotted and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the ghosts that mate with the flock are striped, spotted and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban's doing to you. I'm the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God's taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God said, you do. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he'd gained the livestock and his possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel stole her father's household gods and Jacob stole the heart of Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. Just the reading of God's word, let's pray. Let's ask him to bless the hearing the trusting, the fearing, and the loving of his word. Let's pray. Lord, we, we come to a command that you give. We come to promises that you add to that command. 
And Father, we ask that you would allow us to reflect upon the way your promises to us of greater things than this ally with your call upon our hearts in Christ. I pray this in his name and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Make this word effective for our souls today. Amen. We come back to Jacob this morning, the scoundrel. Jacob, the heel grabber. He's a devious man. He's a complex guy. He's been faithful. He's been mean. He's been bad. He's been good. He's always had God, however. And we have in this story here a very basic command. Go back home. Jacob, go home. It's Homeward Bound time. Now, I personally hate the movie Homeward Bound, primarily because of what happens to the poor golden retriever shadow in that film. I couldn't, I cried when I watched it as a, as a little spry six-year-old. But, you know, <clears throat> Jacob here, you might call his movie Homeward Bound as well. The question is, is there going to be crying? Is there going to be tragedy? Is there going to be toil? And who is he going to go with? We know he's been made rich, right? God has started to fulfill his promise given to Jacob. You're going to have a lot of family. You're going to have a lot of livestock. You're going to have money. I'm going to make you prosperous. I'm going to make you happy. He's done that in the last couple of chapters. He's given him a big family. He's given him a lot of money. Now what? Now what? It seems like it's all coming up roses for Jacob. It's the happiest time since he was a young guy. He's had to work hard, but he has tons of kids, and, and he has lots of money in the currency of, of livestock. He has servants. He's making money hand over fist. He is wealthy. Now, his family life isn't great. Four women in the house, arguing, jealousy, envy, strife, but at least he has beloved Rachel. It's at this point that Jacob faces a sharp turn in his life, a sudden change in direction. It's the parabola. If you look at the parabola of the life of Jacob, it's the turning point now. It's the U-turn. It's the point of reversal over 20 years. It's a huge change we're going to see. And we're going to see the change comes not from Jacob having an upset tummy one morning. It does not come simply from some word that a friend says to him, some intuition he has. It comes from God. God's word comes to Jacob in conviction. God's word comes to Jacob in power. And we're going to see how Jacob responds. Of course, that's not just for Jacob. That's for you. That's what happens to you in your life. It happens today. It happens to many of you in the past. God's word came to you. God spoke to you. You realized I needed to change. Now, maybe it was a minor thing. It probably wasn't as major as this. Maybe it was major. But it will change the direction of our lives as well. So as we look at Jacob, we're going to look at ourselves also. We see first here, uh, if you like an outline, I suppose we'll start here with the command received. If you want to think about God's command, we'll look first here at the command received, the command given, if you prefer. We've seen that God is with Jacob. That's been the theme. That's been his promise at Bethel in the dream, the latter. I'll be with you, Jacob. I'll be wherever you go. I'll be with you. God's been directing. God's been providing. But God has not spoken directly to Jacob for 15 years, over 15 years since that day, that night at Bethel. But now he does. Now he does. We read in verse three. Look there. A message to Jacob from God. The Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred. And I'll be with you. Same thing in verse 13. If you want to skip down there, same thing. Same command. Head home. Go home. Homeward bound. Canaan bound. That sounds fun. Sounds easy. But if you've ever moved, it's not easy. It's not a simple kind of deal, especially if you have a lot of stuff. There's no moving company in the ancient Near East that he could call up. There's no pod system where you put it all. You can't put camels in a pod and send them all across the, 
the Middle East back in those days. This is a complicated, expensive, dangerous upheaval in Jacob's life. But let's think about when it comes. It's striking to notice, when does God call Jacob? He's had 15, over 15 years. When does God give the voicemail? He doesn't come when Jacob's in the poorhouse. He doesn't come when Jacob was, you know, six years before when Jacob had no money to speak of. He didn't come to Jacob when he was slaving away for Laban and, J- and everything was against Jacob. The call arrives when Jacob is settled. The call arrives when Jacob is prosperous. The call arrives when he's getting everything he could imagine. When he's putting down roots. He's got kids. He's got a home. He's got a family. He's got money. It's all there. And now, then God says, Jacob, go back to your native land. Go back home. I mean, I'm sure Jacob was wondering, why is God telling me this now? I'm comfortable. I'm prosperous. That's the point, Jacob. That's the answer, Jacob. That's the right answer. That's why God is giving him this command, because he's comfortable. He's too comfortable. He's too prosperous. He's in danger of forgetting who he is. He's in danger of forgetting, as we read this morning out of 1 Peter, that he's a stranger in this world, that he's an alien. That he's a resident alien in this world. He's in danger of forgetting the promise that God gave back in chapter 28, verse 15. I will bring you back to this land. He's in danger of forgetting his story. I mean, think about it. It'd be scary to return. You have no idea what your brother Esau is going to do. Maybe he's forgotten. Maybe he hasn't forgotten. And Esau was a scary guy. He was a man who would hunt you down and kill you. A lot of history there. Moreover, he's successful now. The love of the things of this world is really, is really uh, attractive to him. Comfort is getting a grip on him. God needs to disentangle him. Jacob doesn't realize I'm in a precarious spiritual position. Time to check out. And friends, that's how God speaks to you so often. When the hustle and the bustle are in your life and the pace and the race and the chase of the earthly days become so attractive to you, so intense, so alluring, So inviting, so important, so high a priority compared to the heavenly chase, the heavenly race, the heavenly pace. God speaks to us and God has to say to you, get a hold of yourself, buddy. Go back home. You need to remember that the atmosphere of heaven is far better than the atmosphere of earth, not least because of the pollution. There's no pollution in heaven, you know that? You need to go back. You need to go back to your real home. You need to go back to your real home. And sometimes if you're not in a great spiritual condition, it has to come with a pretty loud call. God has to do it pretty sharply. You stop praying. Well, I mean, you pray, but you don't actually pray. You say your prayers. You only read the Bible to soothe your guilt about not reading the Bible. And it's a cycle that continues. You stop talking to people about Jesus. Your Christian life is kind of going through the motions. You end up in a far country. That happens to Christians. You can be a prodigal. You can go into a far country. You can leave your father's house. And you need to go back to your native land. And maybe that's what God's saying to some of us today here. You need spiritual help. God needs to call you back to himself. He's doing that right now. But for others, maybe it's the grip of some sin that we have. Some secret sin. Some sin we just like and we just enjoy. It's not, maybe it's not secret. Maybe it's what we do. And God had to come to us and say, leave the country, pack up, move on. I think for most of us, it's not a question of church and sin. 
it's not a question of some major spiritual problem. It's just that we're too involved with the affairs of life. We're just too busy. We're busy with what is second best. We're busy with the family, and that's good. We're busy with our work, and that's good. We're focused on Jesus-ish events. You know Jesus-ish events? I was in a church skit when I was in third grade. Just to note, I was the starring role of uh, Elijah. I don't think because I sang well. It was because I sang loudly. It was definitely not because I sang well, as y'all can tell me now. Uh, But it was because I sang loudly. Right? I've been to those kind of churchy things. I played church softball when I was younger. Fun times. Great. Nothing wrong with church skit. Nothing wrong with church softball. But if that's the extent of your faith, it's a Jesus-ish faith, not the real McCoy. It's possible to surround ourselves with the tokens of theology, with the trappings of faith, not the substance. We don't have time suddenly for the things of God. They're not really enjoyable to us. We don't have time for the things of Jesus Christ that we once had. You know, back in the day, it was way better, and now, ugh. And so we slough off, and we say, well, it's all right to get busy with these things. These are good things. I'm helping out my family, helping other people. I'm caring for them. That's that's a good thing, right? I'm doing my job. I'm working hard. That's a great thing. And in love, what does God do to us? God comes to us, and God says, return. Return. Remember who who you are. Remember where you're going. Remember your destiny. Remember all that I've given to you. He says, get out of here and go back home. Now, notice that he doesn't just give the command. Verse 3. Same in verse 13. He says in verse 3, here's the command. Return to the land of your fathers. Oh, also, side note, key event, I will be with you. That's not like a, a, a throwaway line. That's not like a throwaway part. I often use throwaway language as a good as a good southerner. Language like um or right. Throwaway words. These are not throwaway words in the Bible. I will be with you. Same in verse 13. I am the God of Bethel. You see, when God gives the command, he doesn't just give a naked, nude, bare command. He gives a promise with the command. God is faithful. God will be with you. He will help you overcome every danger. That's the love that God gives to you. He's not required to give you that promise. You know, he's not required to do that. He's not required to be with you, but he does it because that's the kind of God he is. That's classic God. He could just say, do it and we die trying because I am with you. He is a gracious father in heaven. Not just a kind of measly promise either. His promise is not, I'll help you halfway. I'll go with you until you stop for the, for the night. His promise is not, I'll go with you until Leah and Rachel start bickering again. His promise is not, I'll go with you until you see Esau and then you're on your own, buddy. His promise is bursting with love. It's overflowing with compassion. It's open with forgiveness. It's crystal clear that he will restore you as you fail, when you fail, as you falter, when you falter. So the command received. Second, the command reinforced. The command received, and we see here, secondly, that the command has a kind of a double reinforcement, a negative reinforcement and a positive reinforcement. Notice that God, he gives the command, he gives the promise, and then he gives two kind of signs. He gives two different circumstances that pop up in the life of Jacob. Two things happen. One good, one bad. One negative, one positive. Both reinforced to Jacob. Hey, you got to get out of here. Look at the negative one first. Verse 1 and verse 2. Jacob hears the sons of Laban are saying, 
hey, Jacob's taking all our stuff, our dad's stuff. He's got all this money. Suddenly, verse 2, one of the great understatements in the Bible, Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Well, duh. Laban loves money, and you've taken all his money. Very polite understatement. Laban is furious. He's jealous. He's envious. He's hating Jacob. He is Jacob's implacable foe now. It's very unfair because last week, if you recall, Laban said, hey, Jacob, you've made me the money. You've made me a a wealthy guy. 14 years, Jacob was the guy who got robbed. 14 years, Jacob was the guy who got cheated. And now the shoe's on the other foot. And Laban doesn't like it when Jacob's prospering and he's not. It's on the other foot now. It's not a comfortable place to stay for Jacob now. This circumstance of his relatives hating him is helping Jacob to listen to God's command. Hey, get out of there. Jacob is looking with common sense. These people don't like me anymore. He realizes the connection with God's word. I got to get out of Dodge. It shows us, of course, friends, that most of the time when God does something for in your life, he does it and he makes a mess. He makes a mess in your life. Most of the time when God operates in your life, he doesn't make it all tidy immediately. He makes a mess in your life. Even the newest Christian should know this, because what does Jesus Christ do when he comes into a world? He comes into a messy world. He comes into a world that was mucky. He came into a world filled with death dealers. And they didn't stop the moment he came in. They didn't just stop saying, I hate Jesus. They didn't stop hating their neighbors. You see, God does not keep tidy things in our household. He does not keep things neat. He deconstructs our lives. As he does so, that challenges us. That's why there's this one big problem that Jacob has. He has a family. He can't leave without Leah and Rachel and the kiddos. Leah and Rachel have never been far from home. I mean, they've been to the well. That's all we got. They go to the well every day, and that's about it. They go to the store. They don't go very far. They have no idea about this huge cross-country trek across the desert. They won't know the people. They won't know the lingo. They don't have any family there. And, of course, if you think about Leah's relationship with her husband, Jacob, it ain't good, to put it mildly. You can tell that by verse 4. We read here that Jacob sent. Notice the precision of Scripture here at this point to show Jacob's love. He sent and he called Rachel and Leah. He called Rachel and he called Leah to speak with them. Who comes first? Rachel. The order of the verse is very critical. Who should come first? Not Rachel. Leah's the older. Leah has all the kids. Leah's the first wife. She should come first. But Jacob sends the voicemail. He sends the email. He texts Rachel first. Before he talks to Leah. You think Leah likes that? No, of course not. Either to get slighted. But the real question is, are these two sisters who are at odds with each other, who are at baby war with each other, are they going to be okay with going on a long journey away from their dad, away from their family, in the middle of nowhere as far as they're concerned? And that's where we get, secondly, the positive reinforcement, the positive circumstance. He takes them out in the fields, verse 4, because that's where you could talk in those days. I mean, if you're around a lot of tents, if you've ever been camping out, you know, I used to go to Boy Scout campouts, and I could hear people in the next 10 tents away just joshing around and having a fine time. 
it's hard to have a private conversation in a tent. So if you want to talk to somebody, this is what David and Jonathan do later on. They go out in the field. They want to have a conversation. And so he, he talks to Rachel and Leah, and he talks to them about a pretty intense topic. Their dad and his dad, God. Their father and the ultimate father, God. He, he sets up three contrasts between their dad, Laban, and his father, God. He's trying to convince them, hey, go with me. He says, first, verse 5. Laban's attitude is not what it once was. I see that your father does not grant me with favor. He doesn't like me anymore. But God, the God of my father has been with me. But God, Laban has changed. God's love is unchanging. Laban's changed. God's not changed. Second, Laban cheats him. Laban has changed his contract 10 times. Imagine if you had a boss that kept changing your contract. That's one reason why we sign in triplicate these days. We have more and more paperwork because we have less and less trust between uh, employer and employee because of things like this you change your wages 10 times but god verse 7 did not permit him to harm me laban's changed the wages god has made sure it didn't impact jacob third verse 8 no matter what he says he's tried to change the flocks but verse 9 god has changed the flocks He's really changed the flocks. He's made Laban's weak and Jacob strong. He's given Jacob all the money and Laban is in the poorhouse now. So Jacob tells them about this dream he had. He tells them about uh, what caused him to act in the last chapter in that weird paganish way, that white magic superstition to put the wood in front of the animals. He tells them that really it was God who told him to do that, that he would bless him no matter what. And then he says, let's go out. Verse 13. Here's what God told me. Arise, go from this land. We need to head home. And here is the real, the crux of the whole, the whole story. What are they going to say? Well, these women who have every right to ignore him, who personally hate each other, who live in a dysfunctional household, who don't know any of these people, they're going to go see. What are they going to do? They're strong women. They're, They're not like weaklings. They're strong gals. Jacob had not been the leader in his household. He didn't name the kids. He's on the sideline. Finally, he's taking the initiative. He's now doing something. He's saying, let's immigrate. And to an astonished Jacob, to a delighted Jacob, verse 14, they both answer, Rachel and Leah answer. They say to him, our dad thinks we're foreigners. Our dad does not treat us as daughters. He's been manipulating us. I mean, you've seen this coming a mile away if you've been reading the story with us. Laban has treated his daughters like animals. He sold them. He's manipulated them. He took 13 years of their husband's salary. He didn't give a cent to it to his daughters as law as the law demanded. Laban should have provided for his daughters. He didn't do that. Laban, by his own meanness, has destroyed his daughter's relationship with him. Do you see how this reinforces the command of God? Two things reinforce God's command. His father-in-law hates him negatively, positively, His wives, who should hate each other, agree, let's go together. Let's all go together. These situations are pushing Jacob to obey God's command. So that to obey God is not only right, it's also common sense. It makes sense. And friends, when both of those come together in your life, when you have a decision to make, and you have, on the one hand, God's command, it's clear to you, and then you have your common sense telling you, yes, it seems wise to me. When conviction and common sense unite, it's pretty easy to tell God's guiding. 
John Calvin comments at this point, if Laban had treated Jacob kindly, his mind would have been lulled to sleep. If Laban had treated Jacob kindly, well, that could have confused Jacob. Jacob might have said, hey, maybe I should stay here. The point, friends, is that it's not always a bad thing if you have difficulty in your life. It's not always a hard thing. Oh, it may be a hard thing, it's not always a bad thing when God awakens up your brain and your soul through difficulty. Hatred and threats and slanders are more advantageous to us, Calvin writes, than the applause of all men on every side. To put it differently, God sends challenging circumstances in your life quite often to point you in the direction he wants you to go. In the same way, God can provide support from a person, from a direction you never expect. You've had that happen before. You've had that happen before. You were going to have a conversation. You were going to talk to your boss, and you thought it would be a terrible You thought they would ream you. And suddenly they, they want to say, you've been doing great. We want to give you a raise. You have this conversation where, where you think it's going to be awful, and it turns out to be surprising. Look at Lee and Rachel. They should not agree. They shouldn't get. A, they should be at odds. They, they, they should just disagree for the sake of it. Because the other gals offering to, to go, they both agree together. God has worked a miracle in their hearts. He's changed their thinking. That's why seven times in this conversation, Jacob names the name of God. He names the name of the Lord. He's not done that in years. He's not done that in decades. But suddenly, he's been changed. He's been changed as well. Because God has spoken and God has promised. So the command received, the command reinforced. Finally, uh, the command responded to. The command responded to. God speaks to Jacob, and Jacob says, let's go. Let's do it. He submits himself to God's word. It's the way Christ says to his disciples. He said, look, disciples, guys, you go to, into a town. You, give, you preach the word. You, you go into a town with people. He says, sometimes you need to know when to leave. You need to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. You need to know when to shake the dust off your feet. You need to know when to get out of Dodge. And in an Old Testament way, God has appeared to Jacob in a dream. And he says, look, it's going to cause you all sorts of hassle, but it's time to go. And you'll notice that Jacob does not share his plans on Facebook. He does not uh, tell the whole universe. He speaks with close counselors, his, his wives, who realize God's been with Jacob. That's why, friends, this is not really a story about human wisdom. It's a story about God who keeps his word, God who keeps his promises. That's why he, he reminds Rachel and Leah of God's past actions, of what God's done in his life, how God had said, I'll lead you home. And Jacob says, I trust this God. He keeps me. He is now taking me home. This is a picture of what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. God is working everything together for the good of those who love him and are called. Not that everything will turn out roses in the end. It won't be roses for Laban. But God works all things for good for those who love him. I suppose the question is, we think about the way Jacob responds to the command. Are you able to say, the God of Jacob is with me? Are you able to say that this morning? Well, how does Jacob respond? Look at verse 17. He responds, Notice the order here. He put his sons and his wives on camels and then his livestock. That tells you a little picture of where Jacob's heart is. Uh, ladies, what he really cares about is his sons. But at least the wives are better than the livestock in his eyes. 
the children, the wives, the livestock, but they, they, do, they do leave. They all eventually leave. And if you look at verse 19, we see that Laban had gone to shear his sheep. Jacob waits for a smart moment. He, he says, Laban's going to be gone. He's going to be three days away. He's going to be out shearing his sheep. I'll have time to get out. We'll see that Rachel stole his, her father's household gods. More on that next week. And then verse 20, the ESV says, Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean. It's not quite the case. You look at the footnote there, you'll see it, a better rendering. Rachel stole her father's household gods. Laban stole, uh, Jacob stole Laban's heart. Rachel stole his gods. Laban stole his heart. Why is it, why is it put that way? Because they're the same thing. They're the same thing. The gods are the heart of Laban because they made him rich, so he thought. And Jacob is slowly getting the upper hand with this guy Laban. Jacob is slowly undoing this man. We'll see that Laban has to chase after Jacob next week. So what does Jacob do? Very simply put, it's not not rocket science. He obeys. He responds in faith. He crosses the river. He heads for the hill country of Gilead. So what? So what for us? Here's a stranger in a strange land. Here's a guy in a strange land. He's prosperous in the land. Folks become hostile to him. Jacob leaves this land with all its wealth. He sucked up all the wealth of this land. The people hate him. The guy in charge hates him. The guy in charge has to chase after him. What is this a picture of? It's a preview of the Exodus. It's a preview of Moses and Egypt and the Israelites. It's a preview of God bringing his people out of the land of slavery. Jacob has been a slave to Laban. He's been in the house of slavery, quite literally. It's a picture of salvation, not just for the Exodus and the Israelites. It's your salvation, friends. You're in a strange land. You're a stranger in a strange land. And though you may prosper in this strange land we call the earth, though you may have a prosperous time, you may have lots of cash, you may have a great life, but God has to come with his mighty word and say, get out, get out, come to my country, come into my world, come to my land. You see, friends, that's the real call that God has upon your life today. And perhaps he's reinforcing it with pain. Perhaps he's giving you some negative inducement. Perhaps he's saying that relationship, that hope, that dream, that burden you have, you need to get out to the place of blessing. Perhaps he's reinforcing it positively. Prayers from your parents, love from a faithful spouse, humility from your son, your daughter. So what are you to do? Whether you've been a Christian for 30 years or whether you've been a Christian for 30 seconds or whether you're not a Christian at all. What are you to do? You're to listen to him. You're to obey his word. You're to realize that God wants to make you a new person. In a big way, in a tiny way, I have no idea. But in some way, yes. And yet we have to realize that for Jacob, it took 20 years. It took 20 years to bring Jacob to the place where he is at last keeping in step with God. It's taken God 20 years. He promised it, and now he's just starting to bring Jacob home. Where were you 20 years ago? Some of y'all weren't even alive 20 years ago. I mean, imagine if God had given you a promise 20 years ago, and despite all your faults, you held on to that word, to that surefire promise. And finally, finally, Something's happening 20 years ago. And, and the temptation would be to say, well, God's really slow. God's really, really slow. I need it 20 seconds after. 
But God's never slow. He is better, if I can say it this way. He is better than the wizard Gandalf because he always is on time. He always is exactly when he wants to be there. He always affects his promises at the perfect moment. But his work is going to be slow. His work in you is going to be slow, not because he's slow, but because you're slow. Like Jacob, you're slow. I'm slow. We're slow to listen. We're slow to obey. We're slow to trust. We're slow to hear. We're slow to believe. We're slow to rely. We're slow to get out of dodge until we come to the place where, like Jacob, we can say, the God of Bethel is with me. The God of my father is my God. Is that the case for you? Can you say the God of your father, boys and girls, is your God? And for those of us who aren't boys and girls, how much more we ought to live by every word that comes out of God's mouth. That's what Christ says, isn't it? And this word of an exodus, a little mini exodus, a, a, a teaser for the great exodus, this word comes to you today. It says, you need a little mini exodus. You need a tiny leaving from a far country. Some preoccupation that's a little too much. God's voice wakes you up. It says, go back home. So where today is God putting his finger on your life? Where is he saying, not this, but this. Not this, but this. Is there a pressure point? I don't know what it is. You do. If he is, the solution is to trust in his promise. I will be with you. Isn't that what Christ says to the disciples? The Great Commission? He gives all these commands, all these commands. Go, go, go do this. Teach them to obey. All these commands. And then what does he say? I am with you always, even at the end of the age. It's Jacob, this chapter right here. It's right here. I am with you always. That's the guy you serve. He comes to you in flesh. He says, with you. Let's pray. Father, we come from a far country. We come into the homeland of heaven for just an hour, just a little bit of a time. And we ask that you would infuse us with your spirit, that you would grant us by your word to listen to you. We would hear your call. That we would look at the, the reinforcements you give, the, the good ones, the bad ones. And we would respond. Not to make you happy, but because you were with us. You revive our souls. You meet us in the desert. And you call us to live with you forever. I pray that would mark our time this week, our conversations, our lives. We pray this in Christ himself. Amen.